0: Rightio,
2: City Limits, and it's the, um, I don't know what it is, it's the second or third, I think it must be the second Wednesday of the month, indeed it is, Mm. and um, on City Limits today, we're going to be talking to Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth, because I think a lot of people are aware that during COVID, the government is using it as a cover, COVID cover, a bit of alliteration, to attack the environment in all sorts of ways, not just here, but of course, Trump's doing it very strongly in America as well, so we're going to talk to Cam about a number of those attacks on the environment and other environmental issues today and just do a bit of a catch-up in the um, latter half of the second third, two-thirds or so of the program and I'm Kevin Healy. Um, we've got um, Meg Kimber here. We've got Karina. Meg, how are you today?
3: Good morning. I'm good, thanks Kevin.
2: How are you? Um, yeah, I am. I think I'm, I'm keeping myself nice and healthy. I, okay. We'll get to that in a moment actually but I just thought as an opening, as an opening point just to show how Uh, the usual suspects can make something that's really a negative sound totally positive. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) An
2: article in the last week or so, we know that News Limited has cut down a lot of its regional and local papers and just stopped Mm -hmm. them altogether. They're all going online. But the story in the Herald Sun that ran that, which, of course, is News Limited, um, most of News Corp Australia's regional and community newspapers, including Melbourne's leader titles, will switch to a digital-only format as the company reshapes its portfolio to become more uh, consumer-focused. <laughs> That's the line. Now, now, I'm not sure how consumer-focused it is to actually cut them out, get rid of them. Mm. Yeah, it's
3: a bit quirky, isn't anyway,
2: it? It is a bit. But Everything's it's
3: just, for the consumer, though, really. Yeah.
2: It's just the way they operate. That's there. That's right. But more importantly, they were really onto this uh, health problem. Uh, on Friday, they had a they got wraparounds now, where you have four pages of advertising wrapping the front two and back pages. In fact, in many days, but they always have a headline, and it's just despicable. Exclusive: Family of Granddad Killed by Virus Slams Protesters Amid Fears of Lethal Second Wave, and then the actual front page pro all sorts of carry-on there, enough to make you sick. And then inside, page after page of attacks on uh, people protesting about the way Indigenous people are treated. So a typical Herald Sun beat-up.
3: Very typical.
2: Yes, yes. Did either of you get to the rally?
3: I was there, and um, it was a very... Big crowd, very respectful, everyone keeping their distance, everyone had masks on, everyone using hand sanitizer. Yeah, and it was interesting to be able to hear the speakers. Um, obviously, 3CR are broadcasted as well, so I think people can probably listen back if they didn't and really worthwhile because the speakers were, were excellent and, and centred. Um, centred the relatives of, of people, Indigenous people who'd been killed in custody.
2: Yeah, yeah. A lot of the speeches were repeated, were replayed on Monday's Brekkie show.
3: Ah, oh, great. Um,
2: the other morning. Yeah. Excellent. Um, but yeah, it's interesting because it was such a worthy, because I, I must have been, I tossed and turned, but then I, uh, I actually, I, I went to lunch on Sunday with a group of oldies of my generation, you know, people uh-huh. who were all involved in politics, people like, well, Jan Barford who does a program on this station and uh, yeah. and Joan Coxedge who um, is a well-known long-term you know, campaigner around things. And none of us went all because of our age. We felt it was a bit of a health risk. But
3: uh,
1: yeah. it was
2: great to see people turn out though. And um, it certainly yeah. was, was – I was very – not just here but around the world, in fact, the rallies have been so impressive.
3: Absolutely. They really have been and it seems like um... – the first Black Lives Matter um, protest started uh, maybe five years ago. I'm not sure of the exact date, but um, they've been basically running ever since because black deaths in custody and black deaths at the hand of the police have, have kept on happening. But, um, you know, it seems like this moment is, is a bit of a watershed because more people are, are aware of the way that it's, that institutionalised racism is operating.
2: Yeah. We hope it does go on now. It, uh, yeah, it, There's been a few moments where you thought there was the wave hill strike, I suppose, going way back, but uh-huh. things like the, the 88 bicentenary march in Sydney and the response to that, and there were two or three days of activities around it, including a, a magnificent multicultural concert at Bondi Beach on the Sunday. And I left Sydney then feeling really optimistic but the optimism didn't last too long and ditto that massive march across the bridge what Mm. eight or ten years ago the reconciliation march where again you had some hope so there are moments where you think you think and hope things might change and let's hope this time they do.
3: I hope so too Kevin it's interesting to look back on history and you've seen a lot of it from your involvement in Victorian politics for let's not say how many years, but quite a few, right?
2: couple. Mm.
3: Yeah, <laughs> more than two.
2: Hang on. Let's just, just, uh, hold your voice there a second, Meg. I'm just going to pull... We've got to pour the tea. Hang on a tick. There right. we are. There's a bit of tea poured. Okay, now, sorry to interrupt you, but go on. But tea is more important.
3: <laughs> it is. It's You must have your
2: tea. Yeah. I mean...
3: Um, it's it's yeah. like the
2: economy is more important than people dying.
3: That's right. Yeah, it's similar. It's a good analogy. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, that's the thing, like... Um, yeah, how, do, how does change happen? Can we be hopeful that change will happen, especially when there's been so many instances when it feels like there's a big, yeah, there's a, there's a weight of, of public opinion behind certain things and yet they don't change. But sometimes things change incrementally. I don't know.
2: Yeah. It's not just the black issue, but back in 68, I must admit, with the revolutions happening in France and, uh, mm. and and across the world and all the anti-war movement that was developing at that time. We, we I think about that age, I thought the revolution was coming next week, in fact. Yeah. And um, I've, I've been proving to be just a bit out. But um, <laughs> <it's>, <laughs> there have been these moments, yeah.
3: That's the interesting thing because also if you sort of step back and look at a broad view of how capitalism has been operating and what coronavirus has meant for the way that capitalism operates, perhaps that is a factor in the way that this has, um, that, that the vast majority of people have responded to this uh, latest death by police or death in custody issues. People are, are angry and frustrated about a lot of things. Perhaps, I don't know, perhaps there's a possibility that people are seeing that the way that this economic system operates, it's not trying to be in the interest of the majority of people. It's trying to use people's efforts to, for profit for a certain you know small percentage of people.
2: And I think that's highlighted more during corona because yeah. the, the, big, you know, the, the black communities... Yeah. Uh, here and in America, they're the ones who really cop the economic brunt. You know, they are at the bottom of the economic order when it comes to what happens in corona. And so this has all come together at the same time.
3: Yes. And in America, um, uh, African-Americans are more likely are disproportionately affected by coronavirus as well, just in terms of deaths as, as you know, not, not even taking into account the economic outcomes of that, yeah.
2: No and all sex as well so they're low yep. paid but they're the ones out risking their lives in many ways
3: Absolutely.
1: during the
2: coronavirus. Yeah. All that. Yeah well that's um well that's good I'm glad you did you go uh, Karina?
1: I didn't go um my housemates immunocompromised and I was very anxious about being around a lot of people so in some yeah. ways I was really really happy with the turnout and in, in other ways it's um it's difficult, isn't it, to, to balance these things? It's it's so important. It's
2: it is. I be there. I went through the same crisis myself, thinking about it all week. But uh, that was the other problem was getting there and back. I think because if there's a big rally, then the public transport too was always crowded, and I thought that was going to be a problem in terms of the distancing. Meg, was that a problem, or did you?
3: Um, I went by bike, so I was okay, but...
2: Okay, you got over the problem, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was the other way around it.
3: <laughs> yeah, that would have been an issue. I thought that too. But
2: Karina, yeah, Karina's hit it at a, another point that, uh, you know, they, they, on one hand, as they relax the whole thing because they want capitalism to get back on its feet and resuscitate mm-hmm. the old capitalist system, they, they, they admit there's new cases, but those new cases... Are worth less than what capitalism's worth. So the the economy comes first. But now they're saying because people went on a march, there could be a spate. So if there is a spate and it's really down to the fact they've just relaxed the restrictions,
3: mm-hmm.
2: the media, the usual suspects, they're all going to blame the rally for it. Yes. That's the, that's the danger we face. So we hope there isn't a real spate in the next week or two because otherwise the, the rally organisers are going to cop it um yeah uh, rather than the real cause which is the desire to get capitalism going
1: well it's so it's so barefaced kevin isn't it where you know it's it's that dichotomy between it's the risk versus the importance of what you're doing and if, if it's important enough to get schools going if it's important enough to get um, events that are financially beneficial good for the economy you know versus versus a basic human rights issue you know it's it's so barefaced seeing what What is worth risks in regards to Corona, and what is not worth risks?
2: Mm. And and the the speech that will be the the response that Morrissey gave, trying sounding like the usual nice, nice, moderate Morrissey that he tries to portray himself as. What he actually said was as nasty as anything Trump says, but he said it much more nicely because he was. He was saying, P. yes, people have a right to go and protest. I don't, you know, I'm not going to knock that back. I agree they have a right. Then he said, but they should think of all the people who couldn't visit their mother on Mother's Day and all the people who couldn't commemorate the dead on Anzac Day and all the people who couldn't go to the funeral of their loved ones. And, he, you know, this bloody line. Wow. which was so bloody nasty, um, mm. saying that if you if you went to the rally, you were dishonouring all those other people who have been observing the restrictions.
3: All these nice, honest, like good, law-abiding white people who can't see their mothers. That's right. Not to mention, like, it doesn't matter about all the Indigenous mothers that have lost children because of colonialism and racism. And yeah, that's
2: right. And the fact that Mother's Day itself's a capitalist concoction just to make money per industry. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, anyway, ignore that little fact. Just um, moving on, um, I'd hate to mention him all the time, but last week we mentioned, we'll go backwards, we we mentioned, I don't know, a few months ago now, a dreadful article by Andrew Bolt attacking Greta Thunberg, which he does all the time, but one which attacked her because of her condition and the fact she has Asperger's and, um, and elements of autism and she's on the spectrum. And he got stuck into that. And at the time, I think I said people, people who are concerned about those issues really should take him up on it because it's such a dreadful, you know, it was, it was really, it was really blaming her saying that what she's doing is a response to that. It's caused by that and therefore take no notice of her.
3: Yeah.
2: Shocking article it was. And apparently it, it, well, people did complain and it went before the press council. And last yeah. week they came down with their finding. Uh, and they let him off on a couple of things, but they did make some interesting comments, which I think are worth worth quoting if people haven't seen them. Nonetheless, in considering the article's language and treatment of mental health issues, the council considered that the language in the article is likely to cause substantial offence, distress, and prejudice as it attempts to diminish the credibility of Ms Thunberg's opinions on the basis of her disabilities and by pillaring her supporters on the basis of her disabilities. In doing so, the Council considered that the publication did not take reasonable steps to avoid causing or contributing to substantial distress, offence by people with disabilities and their families or prejudice toward people with disabilities expressing their opinions in public. The Council considered there was a public interest in the public being informed about Ms Thunberg's disabilities but that there was no public interest in the undermining the credibility of a person, her opinions or her supporters on the basis of her disabilities in circumstances where many people without disabilities share and express similar opinions. Accordingly, the Council concluded that the article breached General Principle 6, which was a a good finding because, um, Mm. as I said at the time, that was a shocking article. But true to form, then Bolt came out in his article the next day and got stuck into her again and said that the decision was terrible yeah. and said it's getting harder to have an honest discussion when even the press council would gather would rather hear sweet green fables than blunt truths. And he, um, he goes on to say that um, yet this teenager is both a guru and shieldy. She has no expertise in global warming, grossly catastrophizes about a mass extinction and proposes solutions so extreme that almost nobody could live by them and it's the usual attack on her and attack on her condition and he says it is a simple a symptom of autism and forms of asperger's to not really care about social codes in quotes or not fully understand them that often means not tolerating compromises etc and he goes you know he just raves on yeah. but he's not he's not learning maybe he'll be back at the press council again with that one because he uh, yeah he exacerbated the situation
3: well that's a good outcome from the press council but yeah, that's. I mean, he doesn't change. Yeah, it's interesting how you know social codes. You know, just they're just a code word for capitalism, really. Like, yeah, and yeah, that's upsetting.
2: Yes, and as um as the economy drips on and as the uh, job keeper keeps going, there's been a number of cases where they've been forced to investigate employers for maybe rotting job keeper. Wow. by rorting their books um, there's a few cases where to meet the requirements they've actually juggled the books so that they look like they're making less than they really are, so they qualify for job keeper and there's been a few employers um being being inspected or being yes being inspected and uh, and maybe being charged uh, about it but you know wait and see but there's at least the at least whatever the overseeing authority is, is, is looking at a few of them, although I'm sure there's plenty getting away with it. Yeah. And there's other, uh, on the grapevine, there's stories that other employers, because they complained that many workers who were earning less than the the uh, 1500 a fortnight, uh, were getting going to have actually a, a wage increase effectively. Uh, it's It's been, apparently a number of employers are paying workers what they were paid before, but not giving them the full amount. Now, um, one assumes, therefore, they're pocketing the difference. Mm. Or, and I say this um, with some scepticism, or those workers who normally earn more than that much, they're paying them the extra amount of money. But I, uh, I doubt the second one.
3: Yeah, yeah. It's funny how, like, even when there's the possibility to give people a better wage, people, people don't want to do it. There's a disincentive to doing it because then people expect to, you know, have a good wage, have a living wage.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, just another catching example of employers ripping off on a, a system like I'm sure this one and we'll talk about it more next week on housing obviously, but the big money thrown out last week for um for new homes and for renovations. Mm. Uh heaps of money. But again, I, you know, it it's it's open clearly to rotting by by the big building companies. I mean you can see it coming.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
2: But that's different to uh, to workers and people marching for black rights, I suppose.
3: It is. Um, Kevin, our guest is here.
2: Yeah.
3: Was there anything else that you wanted to bring up before we let him in?
2: No, I, Well, I was just going to. The only thing I wanted to raise there's been a few attacks. We know that during this, they're trying to slash awards and wages and conditions of workers madly. And there's a bloke called uh, Gordon Cairns, who's chair of Woolworths. But he's also chairs Origin Energy and he's, he's on the Macquarie Group. Um, he's a director of Macquarie. Uh, and he's, he's come out poor man and said that they need to get rid of penalty rates. I mean, you can understand a bloke in his position just not being able to afford them. And that most people now want to shop on Saturday and Sunday. And therefore, it's unfair that they have to pay penalty rates to workers at the time when people want to shop. Forgetting the minor fact that maybe the workers themselves would like to shop if they weren't working, but that's another point. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he's come out, he's, 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 he's recommending all sorts of slashes to wages and conditions because of the economic climate, unfortunately. you know They'd love to pay more if they could, but...
3: Yes, indeed.
2: There you are.
3: That sounds very familiar.
2: Yes, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? <laughs> Look, let's take a break. We've got Cam on the line and um, we'll talk to Cam after this break.
1: You're listening to 3CR Community Radio,
2: 855 AM. 3CR is your station in solidarity and struggle. We've been with you since 1976 and we are here to stay. Throughout June, we're running a station appeal. We need the financial support of our listeners to stay independent, community owned and radical. Jump online and give what you can. Go to 3cr.org. Okay, back on City Limits, and on the line we've got Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth, who's going to talk to us about what's happening to the environment while people are concentrating on COVID, etc. But, Cam, before we go there, and it is related to that anyway, uh, during COVID, we hear the government and authorities saying that. Their reactions are all based on listening to what the scientists, the medical professions, the experts say. So this must surely give you hope for the climate uh, situation in the future if governments are going to start listening to the scientific evidence.
0: It would be very nice if they followed the science when it came to climate change. I think probably I'm not super hopeful that the federal government will do that, but at least the messaging it gives you a little bit of heart. Yes,
2: I suppose it does. <laughs> You're optimistic there, Cam? on on climate change on um, with covid we're seeing a number of things we'll get to america eventually cuz trump's doing terrible things as well but here what what have they, what's happening to the environment because we're not hearing much about it while all this is going on
0: so this is part of very long campaigning as we know you know we've had a federal a, a conservative federal government for a very long time now and they love fossil fuels And they don't like environmentalists and they don't like environmental protections and they generally don't like really strong workplace conditions. And so they have been playing a really long game to gut environmental protections and they've got a fantastic opportunity through the COVID pandemic. So you'll notice their rhetoric around cutting so-called green tape which is environmental protections and cutting so-called red tape which is workplace protections is is a really dominant part of the narrative as we start to move into the post-pandemic phase and that's been really shown by the commission that they've set up which is the national covid coordination commission which is stacked with fossil fuel people but it's also noticeable in the rhetoric coming out of people like the federal environment minister who are talking around fast tracking developments and what that means is cutting the protections that we've taken decades to put in place
2: and power of course the head of that body you're talking about he's an exporter skew person and he's now also involved with another energy company anyway so he And their recommendations are very strongly uh, subsidies toward toward gas is one of the things they're recommending, of course, to, to bring a pipeline across the country.
0: Yes. There was that very interesting leaked report from the manufacturing group that advises the commission. So the commission, as you say, is strongly stacked with people from the fossil fuel sector. But if you read that report... Um, and it wasn't really meant to come out into the public domain, but it actually ignores climate change, which is phenomenal for something done, you know, in this year, in this decade. But what it suggests in terms of the federal government underwriting increased national gas supply and partnering with all these private companies to build gas supply and to build pipelines, it even talks around... Um, gas-fired power plants no one in the private sector would put their money into that anymore and it ranges it raises this crazy dis- distraction of nuclear power even so it's a little bit like a wish list that you'd think the institute of public affairs will put together and it's really worrying that this is actually what passes for federal government policy thinking on climate and energy in the 21st century
2: well, Andrew Liberis, who's an ex-DOW chemical executive, he, he's chair of that particular manufacturing task force group, and they've recommended, yes, that they, they, they get heavily subsidised because um, it's going to be good for the economy, good for the country to have all this, uh, all this gas floating around, the, uh, floating around Australia.
0: Yes, and unfortunately, you know, it's, it's caught in the past. If, if we kind of step back from the, this current conversation around what do we do after the pandemic and what do we do with the recession that we're moving into, federal government policy around employment has been pretty disastrous. Um, the figure I've seen is we've lost 140,000 apprentice positions and kind of, you know, low-level step into trading positions in the last seven years. So the industry policy has been disastrous. And if you just spend some money to pump some more gas, that won't actually generate much jobs and it certainly won't generate jobs per dollar. If we're really serious about, you know, creating employment, which I hope we are as we come out of the pandemic to get the economy moving again, then you've got to look at smart, job-rich ideas. And we would say that's things like retrofitting houses to make them more efficient. Let's start with public housing. Let's go into the, the rental market. You know, let's make tram stops all accessible by wheelchairs there's all these things we could be doing now that are smart that will make our societies better that will improve people's living conditions and will create jobs now and create a lot of jobs per dollar of public funding and this kind of gas fired recovery idea it's very little bang for bucks in terms of jobs per dollars invested Mm,
2: well the um the Gippsland, the gas um, situation, of course, the, their optimism has been helped a bit by the fact that recently, when everyone thought Victoria was going to permanently ban it, has lifted the lifted the ban on on extracting gas, onshore gas, uh, which will come into effect, and in, I think it's July next year, isn't it? It starts, comes into effect, But uh, and the industry saying it should come into effect immediately anyway, but the Victorian government's about face on that has certainly given them optimism, Cam.
0: Yes, I think it has. And the next kind of test for the Victorian government is whether they uh, actually approve the five offshore uh, gas drilling parcels that are up for tender process at present. And that's kind of in the, the west of Victoria, kind of from Port Campbell across to the South Australian border. So they did well on banning fracking. They failed on lifting the moratorium on onshore gas drilling. The next test will be the offshore uh, gas issue. But the really disappointing thing about them lifting the moratorium is, in order to do that, they, they spent a whole bunch of money on a thing called the Victorian Gas Program, and it's done four public reports outlining what the gas resource is in the state. And that o- their own report admits that it will it's not enough gas if we lift the moratorium to bring prices down so it you know it will impact on farmland it will impact on the climate and it's not actually even going to help consumers you know that are just paying for the gas bills at home so you really do have to wonder why they took this position and you can only see it as being about ideology trumping common sense when it comes to energy policy and for a government that on energy has generally been pretty progressive, uh, you know, the Victorian Renewable Energy Target, they re- rebuilt the Climate Change Act, they've, they've created the Solar Homes Program and so on. It is pretty disappointing that this is just the sort of decision you'd expect from a conservative government.
2: Yeah. Do you know why they changed their mind It was it?
0: Uh, well, there was a big campaign to win the ban on fracking, which people probably remember started in about 2011, and part of that was opposition to the onshore gas uh, issue as well. When Daniel Andrews came to power, he put in place an inquiry, and that led to a permanent ban on the process of fracking, but only a moratorium on onshore gas. And I think the moratorium was put in place basically to keep you know, the brown thinkers in the ALP happy. Um, you know, rather than permanently banning it. So there was always, I think, the assumption that it would just be allowed to lapse and, you know, they'd go back to, as they say, business as usual, which is uh, digging up fossil fuels. Mm.
3: Cam, um, how about the news about logging in Victoria and the Victorian government's um, role in that uh, in terms of, like, what they're talking about and the rhetoric that they have and then some of these actions that happen that are not very publicly known?
0: So I think this government started with good intentions. They created the forest task force, and you know they put unions and industry and green groups in a room to try and hammer it out. And then there was hopes that there would be that did that basically it kind of went into a coma, like it never kind of went anywhere, despite you know thousands of hours of work by anyone. Then uh, in the build up to the 2018 election, there was this sense that they would do something after the election and then November last year they announced that they would protect all old growth and they would put in place a transition plan to get the native forest sector um, out of native forests and into plantations and they put 120 million on the table and that was all fantastic. Uh, and then the fires happened last summer and since then really the only fair thing you can say is that forest policy has been an absolute train wreck. The, the government hasn't been able to move. Um, they've they've uh, rubber-stamped salvage logging in burnt areas and ecologists will generally say that's the worst form of logging you can do. There's constant court cases around threatened species that the government loses and they haven't put out the details on what the transition plan will look like. So, unfortunately, they're just really not showing any clear leadership on forests at present. And and it is disappointing because, you know, the forest campaign has gone on forever, but, you know, the forest process under the Andrews government has been going on for several years now and uh yeah it's just very very disappointing it hasn't been able to land any outcomes as yet
3: and how do you think the fires um interacted with that
0: had a huge huge impact like we know that i think was 24 percent of our wet what's called cool wet forests were burnt in victoria and that's you know where our timber comes from so the, the native forest industry has not been sustainable for a very long time. You know, we're, we're cutting more than we regrow, but now the fires have taken out vast volumes of what previously had been the ash forest that we tend to rely on. So it had been profoundly unsustainable and now it is catastrophically unsustainable. And, uh, you know, it's just remarkable the government hasn't been able to admit that in public they they know it's not sustainable anyone that looks at the industry knows we you know we're we're paying basically to keep the door open that the taxpayer is paying to to keep Vic Forrest on the road and they just for whatever reason maybe they're scared of you know being beaten around the head by the conservative press and the liberals for killing off jobs if they announce the transition but you know for whatever reason they just haven't been able to demonstrate that leadership that says, look, after these fires, there just isn't enough left. You know, the future is in tourism. The future is in regional economies. The future is in, you know, biodiversity and carbon storage and water supplies for our rivers and towns. You know, let's get on with this and transition the industry and they just haven't done it.
2: And even in announcing last year that would cut out, it was going to cut out in 11 years from when they announced it, 2030. I mean, that... Why not cut it out now?
0: well, i I do understand you know they've they've got a transition and 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 the industry needs to go somewhere and there's ongoing problems with plantations failing and also burning, so a lot of the foresting. Uh, that were put in places, plantations burnt, for instance, in 2009. But they could have, have have done something much more meaningful than they have. And we would continue to argue that, well, why are we making paper products out of trees anymore? You know, there's all sorts of mm. products we could be using. It's a kind of almost like a 19th century concept, cutting down trees to turn them into paper. The really good part about that government announcement back in November last year was that they would Move immediately to protect old growth. So you know that the, the phase out was too far away. But you know the good thing was they were at least going to protect the remaining old growth, and that hasn't been enacted. So that's the bit that really upsets me. We are down to less than one percent of the old growth that used to exist. That was mountain ash forest. One percent is left compared to when the Europeans arrived here. And of the alpine ash, which is a similar kind of ash tree, we're down to 0.47%. So half of 1% of the old growth is left. So there's just, in the 21st century, there's just no reason to be cutting down old trees, especially given that you know, at least 60% of what comes out of our native forests ends up as pulp, you know. So it's it's just mind-boggling that we've cut down ancient trees to turn a big chunk of them into paper. I just cannot fathom how any sensible government can do that.
2: The Wilderness Society puts the 2030 date down to the fact that the the company that runs the paper mill has a contract to then to use native forests and therefore they just... Conduct is conforming to the contract. Um, is there any that seems to be, that may well be a
0: factor. Yes, I think that has to be it because I think the government was concerned about breaking those contracts and the payouts that they would need to make if they did so. Mm,
2: yeah, you mentioned earlier the the offshore drilling down in um, in southwest Victoria. What's the threat there at this stage?
0: So at this point, there's five. Pockets are kind of from Port Campbell. There's a little gap and then through Warrnambool and Portland and right around to um, The south which has been put up under the petroleum acreage release so it could potentially be for oil But we're expecting it to be for gas and it's within three nautical miles of shore So it's in state water. So that's about five and a half kilometers from shore So any drilling that would happen would be visible from shore and and when we ask the government what's going on, uh, they tell us there has been, you know, quote, interest, strong interest in the tender process. So we don't know what the outcome will, will be. They've been sitting on it for a very long time now, but we're expecting the Victorian Gas Program to release a report on offshore gas resources sometime after the end of this month. So a decision is quite imminent. Um, and, you know, you don't know who the operators will be Um Beach energy, there's a Cooper Energy, there's been a number of players, these kind of mid level players that we assume would be interested in these contracts.
2: Shell has got a um, an offshore rig, um, up in up in northern Australia, uh, which has been closed for some time because the authority said there were it, it found some safety problems there and it's and they've been spending months trying to fix up the safety problems. Do you know much about that and what the problem might be? And was it a threat to the environment? I presume it Probably was.
0: I don't know the details on that. I, you know, no, no. We assume it does. And, and the problem, of course, is it's not just in production um, that you know these offshore rigs are a threat um, to the natural environment. It's also the seismic testing that would happen initially. And I don't know if people know, but there's a lot of. Continued exploration, obviously, in Bass Strait over on the east side offshore from Gippsland. And um, there's just some information that's come out in the last week that the seismic testing is impacting on commercial fisheries out there to the point that in the last couple of months, some of the fishes in Gippsland their catch rates have gone down 80%, up to 80%, and they put it down to the seismic testing. So from kind of go to woe, you know, this, this is a really problematic industry in terms of how it impacts on marine environments and the animals that live in those environments. Mm.
2: And related to that, um, there's a strong push by um, a number of people who have environmental names but aren't really a uh, number of groups about carbon capture and storage. And the argument is that, um, in fact, the argument is that it's, uh, it's been proven and that uh, we should... We, they, they argue, they're arguing that we should do hydrogen by it. But one of, the, one of the places they use is the Gorgon development, the Chevron development off the West Australian coast, where they've taken over a, an ecologically delicate island and they're actually pumping gas into the... pumping CO2 into the soil... Uh, But in fact, despite what they say, the Australia Institute came out in response to their argument and said that in fact Gorgon hasn't been proven, it's had problems and that their arguments are completely fallacious and that that in fact carbon capture and storage is working around the world. Um, Comment on that?
0: Yeah, so, uh, you know, carbon capture and storage is like the get-out-of-jail-free card for the oil and gas and the coal sectors. You know, it it has to work or else they have to transition. So they keep hoping and hoping that it will work. And wherever they do it, like that project in Western Australia, and there's a, a project in Canada that's often touted as, you know, proving it works, None of them work at scale and they're hellishly expensive and without, I think, exception, they all run over budget and behind time. So carbon capture and storage does work quite well and efficiently in some industrial processes. So we're not saying it doesn't work, but certainly we're not convinced that it will work at scale that will allow the fossil fuel sector to offset their emissions and As the Australia Institute notes in one of their reports, carbon capture and storage has already sucked up well over $1 billion of taxpayer funds in research and development. Now, if you came up with an idea for a new technology today, you know, you you were going to get energy out of air And you got one billion dollars of taxpayer money to truth up that technology. I reckon after a billion dollars we'd say, look, I don't think that technology is going anywhere, yet it keeps getting these allocations as is happening you know, at present under the COVID recovery, there's talk of giving yet more public money to this technology. I think there's a point where you draw a line under a technology and say, it's too expensive. It's not going anywhere. We've got all this other stuff that works like renewable uh, hydrogen and renewable energy and storage and energy efficiency. Let's just stop throwing good money, public money, that could be going somewhere like hospitals or schools or roads. Let's start, you know, or let's stop bolstering this dead-end technology and get on with the transition we need to do.
2: This piece was written by uh, Peter Cook, a professor at Melbourne, and David Byers, who's chief executive of a group called CO2CRC, but they're pushing hard that we develop hydrogen, but we use use, uh, fossil fuel, but do the old carbon capture and storage bit. And in their article, they claim that it's far cheaper than to produce hydrogen with with renewable energy. Uh, that doesn't seem to me to be to add up. I would have thought renewable energy would be much cheaper way of doing it.
0: I think any you know fair um, accounting of the costs would show that using renewable energy to produce hydrogen is much cheaper. You know they are a CRC around carbon storage, so you know I think we we know what they're going to say. Um, I think that there's incredibly exciting opportunities for export of hydrogen from renewables if we do that at scale and that will really help with balance of payments nationally. So, uh, you know, there's all sorts of interesting ideas around the export of renewable energies like electricity and like hydrogen, particularly into our region of Southeast Asia. Um, and, you know, and if, if we want to go down that path, that is the options of the future this carbon capture and storage it's really going nowhere and you know it's very hard to find anyone in the industry that actually works on the coal oil and gas part of that industry and the research who will you know put their hand on the heart and say this will be working at scale in a way that's commercially viable within the next five or ten years so you know there just comes a point we've got to move on from this conversation i think
2: yeah, but they won't. But that brings us to hydrogen, I guess. I mean, hydrogen's now increasingly being touted as a, a major solution to many energy problems in the future. Is it, is it viable?
0: From renewables, yes, it is. From coal, it isn't. And unfortunately, we do have this pilot coal to hydrogen project that is underway in the Latrobe Valley. And that was originally set up to power... The uh, Tokyo Olympics, which were meant to happen, I think, this year, you know, and, and the fact that they didn't even get close to...
2: Next month, I think they were supposed to be, weren't they? Yeah.
0: It, exactly. And it was going to power the entire, you know, car fleet in Japan and do all these wondrous things. And of course, it hasn't. We've got this tiny little pilot project. I don't even know if we're exporting the hydrogen as yet because this sort of technology keeps blowing out and it can't be plugged into operating carbon capture and storage programs at present. So, you know, again, um, it's, it's this kind of pipe dream that coal was great and it did build our economy. There's no doubt about that. And the Latrobe Valley served us really well, you know, for nine years producing our electricity and allowing us to build our economy. But times have changed. Climate change is real. Technology has moved on. So the question is now how do we make the Latrobe Valley a renewable energy hub that will allow ongoing employment and thriving of that community in the 21st century, that's really the interesting part of the conversation now. And there's lots of very exciting things. There's the Star of the South Offshore Wind Project proposed for Gippsland, which would create 10,000 jobs in construction. There's the Delburn Wind Project just A couple of miles south of the old Hazelwood plant that they're pulling down at present, there's the Turn Gabby solar plant, there's, you know, the ability to produce uh, trains, rolling stock and electric buses in manufacturing facilities in the valley, there's all this really exciting stuff. And while government keeps propping up carbon capture and storage, it holds out the hope that coal still has a future. It just doesn't. Let's go back and let's look at all these really exciting renewable energy projects that could be and should be getting underway and creating jobs and activity that will allow communities to thrive, rather than hanging on to these old pipe dreams that aren't going anywhere.
2: Yeah. I was going to bring you to the star of the South development. This is an offshore wind farm being proposed off the Gippsland coast, and it's. I mean, from your point of view, there's no environmental problems with that. It's going to be okay?
0: No, we don't know that. Um, so we are campaigning uh, to get the environmental processes underway so we can get the answers to that. We're really supportive uh, in, in the concept of the idea. We're working, for instance, with the MUA and other unions to kind of, you know, push it forward as a concept. We think it could be fantastic. It's going to be about the same scale as, one, as say, the Yalon power station, which is still operating. It's going to be the biggest wind project uh, in the country, by my understanding. It will be the first offshore... Sorry,
2: like can say, it could power up 1.2 million homes by 2027 if it's built, so that's that's a fair bit.
0: It is. And and it's very exciting because there'll also be jobs for workers who are currently employed in the oil and gas, the offshore oil and gas sector, which is in really rapid depli- decline in Bass Strait. So we don't actually know the environmental impacts. We want to see a process underway and a robust a robust process to assess those impacts. But until we have a federal framework for offshore wind, which we don't have in Australia, we can't even get on with that. So we're we're still stuck in this political phase of trying to get the federal government and the, of course, the federal energy minister, Angus Taylor, is not exactly a fan, um, pardon the pun, of wind energy, uh, you know, so we need to kind of get him off the fence and get this legislation in place that, sorry, this framework in place that allows us to assess how offshore wind is going to be developed and then that allows us to look into the environmental impacts and then, of course, there's the state environmental approvals process as well. Mm.
2: Yeah. Meg, anything here?
3: Well, I will just say um, anyone who's just tuned in, you're listening to City Limits on 3CR and you can podcast this show at 3cr.org.au or listen to it on your podcast app. And we're joined by Cam Walker from Friends of the Earth. Thanks for joining us, Cam. And and can you tell us anything? We've covered a lot of ground, obviously, in the last uh, 15 minutes or so. Can you tell us Anything about any specific campaigns that Friends of the Earth are working on if people want to get involved?
0: Yes, so uh, we always welcome uh, people getting involved in our campaigns. And an easy way to do it is just do, you know, a web search for Friends of the Earth Melbourne and you'll find us. Um, as I was saying earlier, a really big focus at present is the offshore gas uh, developments. We also think that, um, you know, we're very focused at the state level, our work, and we, we want to see public funds put into good projects, not destructive projects. We're really interested in seeing the the case developed for Melbourne Metro 2. We think that would be a really fantastic investment. Um, in public transport infrastructure uh, that would complement the, the Melbourne Metro 1 tunnel and would uh, basically offset the need to put the North East Link in place. So we're supporting local communities that are fighting North East Link, we're promoting Melbourne Metro 2, we're working on inland rivers, we're working on forest issues, we're working on the emissions reduction target which the Victorian Government needs to announce. and. This is a really important bit of legislation. Our government has committed us to be net zero emissions by 2050, and they've committed to do five yearly emission reduction targets. They're currently yet to announce the targets for 2025 and 2030, and we reckon that if we get the targets right, it will start to drive the transition out of coal and into renewables. So that I, I can't overstate how important that campaign is at present.
2: Well, that announcement, of course, is one that's been delayed because of COVID, hasn't it, I think? Yes. The, the next uh, next stage of that, yeah. But it brings us to um, the, the whole question in terms of you know, what we're going to do in the future, transition. We're always talking about transition for, for you know, workers in the logging industry, workers in the mining industries, the fossil mining industries, but... Um, you know, we need to get going on it, don't we? As you just said, we just need to really have a program really in place to transition those workers so we can get them out of those jobs much more quickly.
0: Absolutely. And and the government is, it's like they're scared of the T word, you know, they don't want to talk about transition, but everyone knows the energy industry is in transi- transition. It just is. Hazelwood closed essentially under market forces. It's like when the car industry wound down, did we ignore it or did we seek to put a transition plan in place? You know, like we've got to learn from the past and go, this transition is happening, whether we want to name it or not. So do we just kind of whistle and look away and hope that it ends up okay? Or do we actually put in place the policies that will drive a transition that works for people? So as the unions say, is it going to be a just and fair transition or is it going to be a market-based transition? And we know what that means. That means people will be thrown on the trash heap, you know, in the latrobe valley pretty much everything that happens around energy goes back to the privatization of the state electricity commission under jeff kennett you know which which basically through thousands and thousands of workers out of work and, and on the trash heap without, you know, any level of, of backup that was meaningful. We don't want to see that happen again. These changes are coming. We need to seize the opportunity inherent in that and make the Latrobe Valley a renewable energy powerhouse with the jobs and with the economic activity and the cleaner air that will come with that so that the valley actually becomes an even better place to live. So, You know, um, whether the, the, the government should appoint a minister for transition, that's one option, or whether they set up a state just transition authority. We don't mind which of those they do. They need to do something, though. They've already put in place the Latrobe Valley Authority, which helped... People who are in Hazelwood transitioning into other jobs. So the framework is already there. They've done some work. They've just got to, you know, kind of put the sign up out the front and go, this is now about a just and fair transition and get on with that job rather than kind of hoping that, you know, the market will sort it all out and everything will be okay because it just won't. Our coal-fired power stations, one's gone, three are remaining. They're getting older by the day. They're getting more expensive by the day. They're all owned by offshore interests, and Australia is a long way away in many ways, and we're just, you know, a tiny little part in large energy empires, and a decision could be taken in a boardroom a long way away that would say we're going to, you know, close down within the allowed time frame, and then they'll be gone, you know, and what will we be left with?
2: Yeah. Speaking of a long way away, also during this COVID uh, period, and I guess even any other time, but Trump is certainly um, relaxing all sorts of environmental rules for industry over there. The resource industry now appears to have just carte blanche to go and do what it likes to the planet. Comment on that?
0: If you look at what he's doing, it is heartbreaking. Like, it absolutely is. As we all know, any good environmental law or any good workplace law or any social justice law None of them arrive one day because a government gets up in the morning and says, oh, I'm going to, you know, enshrine public housing or, you know, a right for this or, you know, uh, an environmental protection. They only happen because of community mobilisation and civil society and unions and environmental groups getting themselves organised. And over time, we build up a legacy, a civil society legacy that puts us in a better place than where we used to be so here in australia as in the united states back in the early 70s through community action we started to get federal environmental laws that are meant to protect the environment in australia and in the usa and elsewhere and what trump is now doing is basically dismantling that framework of protections that have been put in place since the clean air act was put in in the early 1970s and bit by bit He's dismantling all the protections, uh, the Clean Power Plan, the the Endangered Species Legislation, the Clean Air Act, uh, the National Environmental Protection um, Act, the Clean Water Act, to allow corporations to do whatever they want under the guise of a COVID recovery plan. So Trump, in a very real sense, is turning the United States back into where they were in the early 1970s, you know, before the environment movement had any power. So it's basically re the right of coal companies to pollute the air and destroy the rivers and, uh, you know, it's heartbreaking to, to see what's going on over there. It's, it's decades' worth of work that's been destroyed in the space of a couple of years.
3: There's obviously been an impact from the coronavirus in terms of things like reductions in emissions from flying, for example. Are you aware of any examples of governments taking this opportunity to um, do better on climate change?
0: Yes, it's really interesting. All around the world, fossil fuel companies have disproportionate influence on governments, as we know. And yet the European Union is doing some really interesting work around the concept of a green led recovery. Some states and other jurisdictions in the United States are starting to do that. Um, Scotland's starting to do some really interesting work around the concept of a a, a green recovery rather than a fossil fuel recovery. Uh, Because we're still coming out of the pandemic, none of these are, you know, really enshrined as yet, but some of the political noises coming out of some of those countries and jurisdictions like the European Union are actually quite heartening.
3: That's interesting.
0: It shows that, you know, we don't have to just continue with business as usual. We can't do something else. But the other interesting thing, of course, is, It hasn't been decided yet. So we're in the fight at present, uh, you know, and it could go either way. We could still get some good outcomes here. It might go bad in the European Union. It might go bad in Scotland. If political struggle at present around where does the public money go and where does the policy go and what direction does it push the the post-pandemic recovery in?
2: You know that's good news on one hand, but positive news on city limits is a bit ordinary. We don't want that too often. Um, Cam also Australian companies, particular resource companies operating around uh, around the world. But there's you know in I think in, we all know in Papua New Guinea and in in West Papua, they are just dreadful what they do to the environment. And we've got uh, Linus, of course, in Malaysia, and it's currently seeking uh, defence contracts in America. So our role around the world is, as resource companies is, is very, very ordinary indeed, isn't it?
0: I would suggest it is pretty ordinary. Yes, is probably the kindest thing we could say. And, you know, it highlights yet again what sort of world do we want? You know, it, do we want a world where the corporations get to do exactly what they want? Or do we get a world where ideally there's a lot more local and community ownership of resource companies and energy companies? you know, is that the path we want to go down or do we continue to let, you know, the market make all the decisions on everything? And I would say that's neoliberalism. That has failed us. You know, that's Margaret Thatcher and we live in an economy, not a society. And that's 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 not what people are. You know, people, we're, we're complex. We live in communities. We live in families. We live in neighbourhoods. We live in societies. We live in cultures. You know, we don't just live in economies. So any system that is based on, allowing economics to define human activities and cultures is never going to be able to deliver, you know, the good things we need and certainly not the good things we need in a time of climate change and, and climate crisis. So I, I, I do feel like we're at... You know, people on the left, we love to say, oh, this is a historic moment, but this is one of those points in time where it is actually a historic moment and there's a very live political struggle going on about where do we go after the pandemic and, you know, do we return to, quote, normal or do we go into a, you know, a slightly greener version of business as usual or do we transform our economies? And I feel, you know, these are hard times, but these are also very exciting times because of the opportunities that are going on.
2: And of course, in many cases, the rights of local people in the areas they want to they want to mine are just trodden on.
0: Oh, absolutely. And uh, you know, to be honest, we haven't been doing quite as much work on Australian companies offshore uh, in the last couple of years because you just can't be you know in every struggle. But uh, our groups overseas have been working really strongly around investment of organizations and entities based in countries like Australia and where we're investing uh, in for instance palm oil and if you look at the human rights abuses in places like Indonesia from you know us investing in palm oil and then transitioning forests into palm oil plantations and sometimes human rights abuses attached to that you know sometimes Australia really hasn't our companies haven't you know carried themselves well in our region in terms of the investment choices we've taken and the real environmental and human rights implications that have flowed from those investment choices Mm.
3: it's um it's getting near the end of the show now we've just got a couple of minutes left um any quick final questions kevin
2: well we better wind up give a bit of a push to our monthly our annual fundraiser as well so um perhaps we could just wind up there and Cam, look, thanks so much for um, coming on today and going through all that because it's, as we say, it's been a period where the COVID, the COVID crisis has tended to cover up so much that's happening to the environment think was filled it out pretty well so
0: thanks for that today thanks was it was good to have a chat thank
3: you cam
2: okay cam Walker there from friends of the Earth and uh, Meg we have got our monthly uh, fundraiser on it's normally the radiothon this is in fact this this program the second of the month always our radiothon day in, in normal years hmm but this year it's this year it's different but give a plug and raise lots of money for us come on
3: well look all I could say is we're really aware at 3CR that uh, these are Unusual times, people don't necessarily have all the same financial securities and resources that they usually would have. Well, we're not doing our usual radiothon, but we are asking that people offer something, um, whatever they can, and that they can do that by going to 3cr.org.au and donating online. Um, yeah, just to try to keep it possible for us to be having these conversations. There's so many ways that people are working towards change and having a fairer, more equitable, better society, better economy, better um, environment, um, stronger communities. So 3CR is like such an important part of that. And um, we, we really do need people to support us financially for us to keep on doing that. So, again, 3cr.org.au or if you really can't get online, you can call the station on 94198377.
2: Yeah, and um, we do need it. I mean, it's it's strange circumstances this year, but uh, the station has to go on. And in fact, the staff, I think, are doing magnificent work keeping all these programs on the air. And, uh you know, Karina's doing a great job for us and then beyond that goes to 3CR and there's you know they, they're keeping a minimum number I think only one at a time in the building but they're at least keeping the programs going and uh, and it's a great tribute to them but we need money to keep it doing it.
3: Yeah and there's even the the issue like Radiothon we have to have just to have like the expenses of running a radio station covered for a year And at these unusual times, there are additional expenses like looking at adjustments that need to be made, cleaning that has to happen, people working and volunteering from home and the resources that they might need for that. And um, we have to be really, really careful because we have communities of people that are vulnerable in various ways and we have to make sure that we keep them safe. So anyone that's listening that can help, we really appreciate it.
2: Yeah. Well, that line about they're saying, there's a line in the promo saying, we understand people haven't got money, and if you haven't got money and can't give, we understand that. Well, I don't understand that. I I really think, <laughs> I, I believe if people haven't got money, look, you know, what's a couple of days of you and the kids going without food worth to 3CR, for instance, you know, <laughs> or a week behind in the rent, but 3CR? I mean, it, it seems to me we shouldn't be pushing that. I think if you've got nothing, whatever you've got, give us anyway.
3: Also, if you've got nothing, you're probably eating too much avocado on toast, right? Like
2: That's right. That's, that's, it. Why. that's it. Yes, that's yeah, right. You've your wasted your money some week. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs>
3: <laughs> All right. We better wind it up there.
2: Okay. Well, thanks for that, Meg. Thank Karina. And, um, and next week it's housing. So, we'll be talking to Howard Morosi and someone from Housing for the probably probably Shane McGrath.
3: Great. Thank you, Karina. Thank you, Kevin. Thank you, listeners. We'll be back next week.